If you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 13. We're going to finish out this great chapter today, hopefully. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 22 and bring it on down to the end of the chapter there, I think around verse 25. You'll remember that last week we uh, contrasted in our study the wicked messenger versus the faithful ambassador. And we looked at two great examples in the Bible, probably the two greatest contrasts of that that you could ever find, the wicked messenger being Judas, who brought the wicked message to Christ uh, and betrayed him. And then the faithful ambassador would be the Apostle Paul, who was faithful in the ministry that God gave him to establish the Gentile churches. And today we'll look at another great truth in the next section of Proverbs here in chapter 13, and hopefully, as I said, we'll, we'll close out the chapter. You know, when it comes to the Bible <clears throat> and <clears throat> knowing it and learning it, you'll have basically two types of Christians. I mean, you're always going to have the ones who don't care to get involved in it at all. I'm not really talking about them. When you find people who in their mind and their heart, they begin to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the Bible. They basically will fall into two categories. And those who will just never get past the surface of the Bible. They'll never get past just the common basic things of the surface of the Word of God. And then you'll find those who have a depth to them when it comes to the Scriptures. <clears throat> All of my life, I've been associated with churches. I've seen men who were Sunday school teachers, who were deacons, even pastors. People who had been certainly saved for 20, 30 years who should have had a great insight into the Bible. But after all of that time of being saved, and I truly believe they're saved. After all that time of being saved, going to church, their knowledge of the Word of God is absolutely minuscule. It's absolutely just surface. Basic things that, in most cases, they probably have never even studied and got into, probably just heard the preacher say or somebody else say. But then you find people who, that really have a depth to the Word of God. And uh, Thursday night we talked about Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19 where it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I talk to you about the fullness of God. I think it's a tragedy for a child of God to be saved and go through life and never experience the fullness of God. And you're going to find out if you don't know this already, God didn't give some of you the ability to learn the Bible and others, you just don't have that ability. You may have some God-given abilities with what you do in sports or in your job or, or, or what you do in life. But when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to having a relationship with God and learning the Bible, you can have all that you want. There's no limit to that. The only limit will be you yourself. And that Bible says that most Christians, from that verse right there, most Christians are basically just what I call three-dimensional Christians. They just see things in life around them without any real perceptives. 
They don't have any insight. They'll see a situation and they'll see it as it appears, but they'll never have the ability to see it as it really is. There has to be a depth at some point in your life with the Word of God to have the fullness of God. The fullness of God just doesn't happen because somebody, you know, gets saved and gets into the Bible. There has to be a process, an understanding of where you want to go and what you want to do. I always thought of it like people who who like to swim. And uh, there's two extremes in swimming. You have one guy who likes to swim, and he's basically a surface swimmer. Sometimes they're not very confident in their ability. Other times they're very good swimmers, but they basically limit their swimming to swimming on the surface. They stay on the surface and all of their swimming activities, they never go down very deep, and they never get too far from shore. Then on the extreme, you would have what we call the deep sea divers. They're affectionately called the hard hats. They wear the special big brass hat that you're so familiar that you see. They go down to the very depths of the sea. They'll go down and do work on wrecks. They'll do salvage jobs seven, eight hundred feet below the surface. They have the ability to go way beyond the surface and delve into the depths of the oceans of this world. And because of their ability to go deep, they will see and experience things that the surface swimmer will just simply never see. And the Bible's just like that. On the surface, there are some great things to see. There really is. I mean, you just get a basic little outline of the Bible books of the Bible, and there are some great things that you can see on the surface. But when you really go down deep, the book like the bottoms of the ocean becomes absolutely spectacular. I had a friend of mine who was a pastor. His name was Rod Stuchel. Rod was a nice guy, really knew his Bible. But Rod was, a, was an incredible diver. He loved to dive. And he lived up in New York State up there, and he would dive with teams of guys. And they would actually, most people don't even know this, but off the East Coast, just maybe in eyesight of land, down maybe two, three hundred, four hundred feet, there's a whole bevy of wrecks. Many U-boats were sunk during World War II. And these guys would go down two, three hundred feet. They'd have to mix their oxygen with nitrogen and balance it out because of the depths. And he told me one time, and I've always been, I've always been thrilled uh, in, in, with that kind of exploration and, and guys that did that. I could never do it, but I would ask him about it. And he would tell me, he'd say, you know what, Bob, when you get down there about 300, 400 feet and you look up and you can barely see the light of the sun and you're down there and there's fish that you've never seen before. There's wrecks from years gone by, hundreds of years. He even talked about a Spanish galley that they found that sank off the coast back in the 1600s. And he says, it's the most spectacular thing you've ever seen. And Bob, it's another whole world. But you see, when you just swim close to the surface, close to land, you never see things like that. Many times a person will swim close to the land because they always want to be close to the world in a biblical sense. 
like Abraham when God called him to go out to Ur of Chaldees. He started to go, but the first problem he had, he ran back to Egypt. And surface swimmers never get too far from the land, the world. Because when things don't go right, that's where they always head back to. You know, when you study the Bible, it's like a head of lettuce. I think the biggest ripoff on the planet is buying a head of lettuce. Because you've got to throw half of it away before you get to anything that's good. And the more you've got to start peeling back the lettuce. I mean, you can eat the outer levels, layers. And you can, but you know as well as I do, the more you peel it back, the better the lettuce gets. And if you want the sweetest, tenderest part of that head of lettuce, you got to get down into the core of it. And it's the same with the Bible. You can digest all of the Bible, and there's some great things from the surface aspect of the Bible. But if you want the sweetness of the Bible, the tenderness of the Bible, and the really depths of the Word of God, you got to go down deep. You got to get into it. And when you start to peel back the layers of the Bible, God will reveal to you the depths of His Word. And you'll come to the place in your life where you understand the fullness of God. Now, I want to show you something this morning that is really deep within your Bible. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 through 25 is one of the Deepest passages in the Word of God. And obviously at first glance, by a surfer swimmer, that crowd, it just looks like a general truth in Proverbs. Nothing special about it. Nothing that would jump out at you. But when we peel back the layers, you have one of the most sobering and vital truths that a Christian could ever unearth within the Scriptures of the Word of God. I want to read for you now Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 through 25. It says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is that destroyeth for want of judgment. He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth the times. The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. Gene Geisiger, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the preaching of the Word of God this morning, sir? Father, we thank you for your love for us, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and giving us the Word and giving us the church here, Lord. I just pray that you would uh, open our hearts and ears today, Lord. Forgive us where we failed you. And Help us to understand the things that uh, you've laid on Bob's heart, Lord, and uh, help us apply it and help it to have an effect in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Gene. At first glance, that verse is just like every other verse in Proverbs. It's got some good things on the surface, some things that we can look at and say yes to, amen to. But when you begin to look at this through the depths of the Scriptures... When you begin to add the other things in the Bible that take this passage and begin to peel back the layers, you get one of the greatest, and I must add, most sober principles found in the Word of God. And I must add this, that most of God's people, unfortunately, never see and never understand today. You know, most of you are young, 
And many of you have no kids on your own. Some of you are older. You have kids that are teenagers. Some of you have kids that are grown. Many of you have just gotten married and you've just started your family. You've drank of the profound water fountain in this church. That verse across the top is be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And most of you are young, and many of you, as I said, have no kids of your own. The bulk of our church is, is the, the best a church could ever be. And that is a lifeblood of young couples that, that will grow and mature. The older ones, helping them along, bringing them, everybody working in concert, just as the Word of God says. My kids are, as you saw, Kelly is 40, Jamie's 36, 37. I mean, um, it's, it's a thing where you, you have kids, many of you, who fall into that category. Single people and young marriage couple are, are, you know what, you're a while away from starting a family. Even if you just got married. Some of you, you wait two or three years before you have a child, and, you know, some of you don't, but that's okay. Some of you are single, you're not really seriously dating anybody. Some of you are, and you're thinking about getting married. Some of you have proposed. <laughs> And she said, yes. <laughs> Find everybody in all kinds of scenarios and situations. But even in that, you always want to think in a proactive, long-term concept. I think that one of the missing elements today in Christianity that has been sorely lost years ago is the concept of what marriage really is. We look at it in such a shallow concept. We look at it in such a surface concept. And that's not always your fault. Because Christianity from churches today and the pulpits today, they approach everything from a shallow aspect. And there's a lot of God's people that just kind of want to be an inspirational surface kind of guy. I mean, and gal. I put together, we've been doing it on, on the people ministry yesterday morning, and some of you have showed up for that. I, I put together a set of lessons that I want to begin to use for premarital counseling, and I taught it to the people ministry because I want people to be able to have those <coughs> if they want to use that because, you know, when people want to get married, I want everybody to have that ability to be able to do that. And I basically uh, built, uh, I, I basically took the seven, the seven pillars of marriage in the Bible. Just seven basic fundamental pillars that marriage is built on. We've talked about understanding marriage. We've talked about, you know, all of the aspects. Uh, yesterday we talked about the husband's role and the wife's role. I cover all the different aspects. The last lesson is understanding the dangers that will confront your marriage. Because I think this thing is, is really, really missing today. And I think most of God's people have a very shallow understanding. And I think that they need to begin to look long term. Now, let's look at our first verse here, verse 22. The first part of that verse says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Now, in our passage today, I, I simply want to focus on three words, three concepts. They're all found in this verse. And I want to draw your attention to these three things. The first one we're going to talk about in just a second will be an inheritance. What really does that mean? The second one I want to talk about is 
your grandchildren, your children's children. And some of you are not even married yet. Some of you don't even have a wife or a husband or have any children. Some of you have married and have a wife and a husband and have children, but you have no grandchildren. And yes, some of you, like myself, you have children who now have children, and they're your children's children, and they're your grandchildren. And then the third thing I want to talk about is generations. In particular, the third one. There's three generations here in this passage in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. There's the man, then there's his children, and then their children, children's children. You know, when I started to take the Bible apart some 30, 40 years ago, I guess by now, and I really wanted to learn it, one of the great deep aspects to the Bible came through the understanding of generations in the Bible. Generations of how God looks at them and what they really mean to me and really mean to all of us. Now, I've told you many times that the book of Genesis is the key book in the Old Testament for unlocking the rest of the Old Testament and even unlocking the New Testament. And I've told you many, many times you have two key books, one in the Old Testament, Genesis, and one in the New Testament is the book of Acts. You get those two books down and understand them and learn them, rest of the Bible pretty much falls in line because they're the two key books. And as I, as I looked at the, those two books and how vital they were, I began to see uh, uh, all how that they really pull together all the things that I needed to understand about the Bible. And as I looked and laid out Genesis, I saw that the whole book was built around families and the generations of those families. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I must have read the book of Genesis through 40 times before I really started taking the book apart. And it was one of the most amazing things that God ever taught me. There it was, right in front of me. I had read it, I don't know how many times. And when I looked at it, and it, it, it dawned on me, right in the middle of that book, I was trying to build the book around this, build the book around that, <coughs> divide it up here, <coughs> and suddenly it hit me. The whole book of Genesis is simply built around eight different generations. The first book in the Bible puts the emphasis on the importance of the generations of families. In Genesis 2-4, you have the generation of the heavens. In 5-1, you have the generations of Adam. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, you have the generations of Noah. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, you have the generations of Shem. In chapter 25, verse 12, you have the generations of Ishmael. In chapter 25, verse 19, you have the generations of Isaac. In Genesis chapter 36, verse 1, you have the generation of Esau. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, you have the generations of Jacob. Now, the whole book of Genesis, the key book, is built around families and the generations connected with those families. And you know, for God to do that, he has something for us to see. He could have laid out the book of Genesis any way he wanted it. He picked the concept of generations 
and the families within those generations. And I'll tell you something else. You take each one of those from a practical standpoint and start going through those generations of each one of those, and you see the men in that family, how that family, what they did for God or what they didn't do for God, it's one of the most amazing things that you could ever go through to understand about your own family. Generations are absolutely imperative to unlocking the Scriptures. Did you know that the key to the second coming of Christ is nothing more than the generation of Israel becoming a nation? He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32 through 35, he says, Now learn the parable of a fig tree, when its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled. Right there in front of you. And yet you would spend thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars anyhow, <clears throat> buying somebody's tape, buying somebody's books, getting somebody's chart that all focuses on the second coming of Christ, when it's going to happen, when it's going to get. You get some idiot up there in the pulpit talking about the blood moons and how they figure in. You get some other idiot talking about the ashes of a red heifer and how it works in. And yet the Bible told you that the key to the second coming of Christ is a generation. Generations are vital in the Bible. Surface swimmers. Now in our verse, we have our first key word that we want to look at. Children's children. <clears throat> that will be our grandchildren. In your family, it will be you and your wife. Hopefully someday, your kids. And then down the line, your grandkids. Three generations of your family. Now, I want to tell you something. Our verse today, inheritance to the third generation or children's children. I want to make a statement, and then I'm going to come back and take you through the Bible on it. But with God, there's something really important about the third generation of your family. When you see Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, or Exodus chapter 30, verse 7, you know what he says? He says, I'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. Start with the third one. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible and where you're at, but you know the number three in your Bible will always stand for the completeness of something. When something hits three in the Bible, it's complete, and it forms a balance. Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination in the sight of God. So, that number three, in God's mind, will always be something is now complete when it comes to your Bible. That Bible says that the Bible is, has a doctrinal application, a historical application, and an inspirational application. And when you have that down and you understand it, you have now a balance and you have a complete understanding of how the Bible goes together. You take man. Man is a body, soul, and spirit. Man was incomplete. He had a body, soul, and a dead spirit. When he got saved, he has a body and a soul, and now a live spirit, and now the Bible says you're complete in Christ. Three is the number of completion. You want to study God's Son? You can talk about the Lord. You can talk about Christ. You can talk about Jesus. 
his complete title that gives him the balance of everything that he is in his completeness is the Lord Jesus Christ. Three. You want to study God? You want to understand God in his completeness? It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You want a complete breakdown and and work out of the Old Testament? It's the law, the prophets, and the writings. Three. You want a complete balance of the New Testament? It's the Gospels. It's the Acts. It's the Epistles. In our own life and everything we do, nothing is complete without the third part. In time, you have past, present, and future. In matter, you have source, generation, and position. In reality, you have time, matter, and space. When God made the earth, he made the land, the air, and the sea, and there's nothing else. When he made the kingdoms of the earth, you have the animal kingdom, vegetable kingdom, and the mineral kingdom. When God gave us music to praise God by, the complete concept of music is harmony, melody, and rhythm. Take one of them out, you got rock music. (laughs) It's the Army, it's the Navy, and it's the Marine Corps. And the family is complete. When you have a father, you have a mother, and you have a child. And there's a reason for that. God didn't put you on this earth just so you could find the love of your life and then go do off whatever you want to do, you know, pouncing through the daisy fields. Like the commercial you see, the guy's, woman's over here looking at her flowers, and the guy's over here, and they turn and look at each other, and they're mentally struck with each other, and he starts to leap toward her, and she starts to leap toward him. They miss each other, go off the cliff on either side, and the end of the story. <laughs> Nothing in this planet will be complete without the third part. Two plus two is incomplete till you get the answer. Six. (laughs) And in God's mind, my dear friend, I'm telling you right now, there's something about that third generation of a family ministering together. A father bringing his family up through his kids, them bringing their kids up to the third generation that completes something with God. Because the verse says, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. That's the third generation. (coughs) Now, along with that, we want to develop this. In the Bible, it says that your children are a heritage of God. Psalms 127, 3, 4, and 5. It says, lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. His arrows are, as arrows are in the hand of mighty men, and so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that have his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak uh, with the enemies in the gates. Verse 3 says that low children are a heritage of the Lord. Most people teach that and take that verse that children are your heritage. That's not what it says. The children are not your heritage. God gave you your children that they would be a heritage unto him. And the fruit that they produce is not your fruit. It's fruit for... There's something about this third generation. 
There's something about the concept of a family that we have lost today that when couples get married, they have no idea of what they're getting into. That Bible says, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. When you get those kids, they're not your heritage. They're God's heritage. They're not for your reward. They're to bring about a His reward. And you take your kid just like a man takes an arrow and you shoot it at a target. And you'll launch your kids through life at a target called heaven or a target called hell. You'll launch your kids through life at a target for serving God or a target for serving the world. You'll launch your kids on a target of going out and doing things for God and doing the ministry of God or being in a bar someplace on Friday, Saturday night. You launch them. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Proverbs 17, 6 says, Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. There it is again. Children's children, the crown of old men, the glory of their fathers, that third generation. Now, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 through 25 says that your family will not totally be established in the ministry of God and not totally be complete and functioning to that third generation. Now, verse 22 says, a good man. I love that. Boy, I hear it all the time. Well, he's a good man. I always ask myself, compared to who? You know, the fact that somebody says you're a good man doesn't really mean anything or I'm a good man doesn't really mean anything until you really focus on compared to who or what. Amen. Guy said one time, well, he, about a pastor, he really did a good job. I said, compared to who? Well, he's really a good man compared to who? Joseph Stalin? <laughs> Saddam Hussein? What does that mean? It's a relative term. Unless you have an absolute standard. Good in the Bible, goodness in the Bible, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's goodness. When somebody says, my goodness, down south they say that, my goodness, they're saying my Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the goodness of God. And for you and for me, when it says a good man, there's only one standard to judge that by, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It never ceases to amaze me how that somebody, I remember when the Boston bomber killed all those people with that pressure cooker in Boston Marathon. He obviously did it. He obviously was terror. It obviously was, was with Middle East behind it. He obviously did all of those things. He obviously deserved to die. He obviously killed all these people, maimed all these little kids. And when they interview his mom and dad, what do they say? He was a really good boy. Compared to who? Adolf Hitler? It's all relative. Unless you have a point of reference in your life that connects your goodness to Christ, 
Doesn't matter. A good man will leave his children an inheritance to the third generation. Couple of things here. First of all, a physical inheritance. Leave him your money, an estate. Get your house, get your car, get your shotguns. Get all the stuff that you couldn't take with you, which is nothing. And a second aspect will be the word of God that you put in their lives now. Because the word of God will go with them for the rest of their life. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking very deep. This verse is talking way down the line. This verse is talking about what most of God's people who get into a marriage and raise a family never get to see because they're surface swimmers. They never get the depth of the scriptures to realize that there the father is to be an inheritance for his children to the third generation. There's some things that we need to be aware of this morning. We know that God has a master plan to reach the world. What we don't understand many times that the plan is through the family. The families of this earth. Most people will miss this entirely because they're surface swimmers. In the book of Genesis, the devil launches, before you go three chapters, the devil launches two major attacks. And in these two major attacks, he shows you his motor operandi for the next 6,000 years. The first thing he attacked was the word of God when he says, Yea, hath God said, then he changed what God said. Everybody gets that one. The second thing he attacked was the family. Adam and Eve and their kids. We fail today to see the importance of the family. When God called Abraham out in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he prophetically told Abraham that all the families of the earth are going to get the blessings of God through your family. A little bit later on in Genesis 18, 18, he told him again, all the nations of the world are going to get the blessings through your family. God works his plan of redemption through the families and then takes it through the nations. He did it in the Old Testament. He does it in the New Testament. This is why in the Old Testament, most people don't get this. This is why I wish all the kids were in here today. They could hear this. This is why in the Old Testament that uh, they had very strict laws for rebellious children. You sash your mom and dad back and, 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 and get short with them or tell them this or tell them that and be rebellious toward them. And, you know, you, you get away with it many times. Many times, uh, you know, get a whack or you get this or you get punished, up and taken away from you. In the Old Testament, it was totally different. In the Old Testament, they just killed them. Dad would say the first time, son, that's not right. Ah, you don't know what you're talking about, you old fogey. Son, I'm going to tell you one more time. Nah, you ain't going to tell me anything, old man. Took him down to the elders. The elders said, look, son, this is your father. You need to respect him. Well, you all don't know what you're talking about. No, we do. We do. We do. You ain't going to put me in some, kind of, in some kind of harness. No, you're right. We're not. We're going to put you in a hole. <laughs> and then we're going to throw rocks down on your head. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Sounds almost like, oh, would God really do that? Thousands of times. But you know why God did that? Because they're under the law. And you know what God knew? 
God knew that, listen kids, God knew that rebellion in God's sight was the same as witchcraft. It's in the Bible. And God knew that if he didn't discipline the children and keep them in the families, that the families would break down, the families would go bust, and God's plan would never get started. Getting your family ministering together and staying together to the third generation will complete the cycle for God. I don't fully understand it. I don't know what he sees. I don't know why it has to be three. But this is what he's telling us. The family's now set. The family's now established. In God's mind, they're complete. You know, in parenting, and I've dealt with parents all my life, in parenting, you find basically three types of parents in parenting. You really do. You find, first of all, moms and dad who completely lose their kid to the world. The kids are unsaved. And the next generations are just as sure as I'm standing here headed for the lake of fire. I mean, it's a tragic thing. I, I see it all the time. I deal with it all the time. It's something in the ministry that it's always there. Moms and dads who completely lose their kids. And then, the, the, you know, those kids are not saved and then their kids have kids. They get married. They marry Bozo the Clown or they marry this guy or this girl, whatever. And then the whole thing is absolutely gone. Then you have moms and dads who, <clears throat> they have enough insight to get their own kids saved. But they fail to develop them. <clears throat> and in time, it winds up going nowhere. And though that kid or kids may be saved, because there's no self-structure, no discipline, nothing accomplished in their life. No vision, no understanding this third generation concept. They may go to heaven, but they get kids, they raise their kids, and that cycle sparrows downhill from there, and it's, it's third generation is gone. A complete breakdown of family structure. You know, we talk about the violence in Chicago. We talk about the violence in New York. All the major cities. We talk about in St. Louis, the very violent city. Kansas City has its violence, but it's, it's lame compared to St. Louis. You all remember the Ferguson deal out there and what happened out there. Everybody, everybody wants to blame the police officer. And I get it. <coughs> there are police officers that are bad, just like there's bad preachers. <coughs> there are. But you know what? Every time a kid, I mean, I'm, and, I, and I don't even remember the kid's name, and it, I, I'm not, nothing against him. I don't think about it. But let me tell you this. I always ask myself, I always ask myself, when I hear this guy out here, you know, he, he broke into this store, went in there and manhandled this little guy over here and took this, took what he wanted, took what he wanted. And when the guy came after him, he big bully like King Kong, going to push him back. You know, that kid's got a chip on his shoulder. You know, if he would do that, don't you kind of think he's probably got an authority problem someplace else in his world? So the radio dispatch goes out, a police officer sees the description of the guy, comes up there, and it all ensues. Well, I don't know what happened other than the fact the guy gets shot. I don't make judgments who's right or who's wrong. You know what I simply say? If mom and dad would have had that kid in church or Bible study that night, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. We want to blame the cops. We want to blame the kids. Did you see the specimen of a father he had? It's families. Amen. Broken, busted families. 
in the inner city, you got women who have sex with any man who comes along and have nine, ten kids by, diff, nine, by 20 different fathers, and that's a chore. You got to see how that works. And, and she has all these kids, no fathers, nobody paying any child support. You're paying for it on welfare. And the guys are out there just, they got Genesis down. They're populating the whole world, man. No responsibility to the kids. She can't raise them all. She can't work. They run wild in the shitty. They get absolutely nothing from the father. And it's white and it's black. And you know what? The whole family system breaks down. Now, let me ask you a question. And and this is my whole point. Why would a saved set of parents that go to church every Sunday when they see the child having an issue with their spiritual things not do everything they can to fix it, biblically? I mean, please don't don't tell me. I, I know a little bit about my Bible. And I know that there's five stages of discipline that you have to enact in your child. And I also know when you lose the child, there's five steps to restore that child. The Bible just didn't say as a parent you go this far and you lose them. Oopsie daisy! There's a plan to keep them from getting out there. And when you fail and they get out there, there's a plan to bring them back. Why will not parents do that? Why is it always blaming it on somebody else? Or this? Or that? The answer is so simple. We have failed to see and understand that God's salvation to the world through the nation comes through the families. And we never focused on our families from that aspect. Never got to that depth. To see the first two attacks in the Bible by the devil was the word of God and the families. And their families, the families from this aspect, have completely broken down. And the path for the next two or three generations is now in full swing mode, and that would be disaster mode. There'll be no heritage for the Lord. There'll be no fruit for the Lord. There'll be no crowns. There'll be no inheritance passed on to their kids. And by the third generation, there'll be no knowledge or understanding of God. Oh, the grandparents will try to do the best job they can. You are a bad second stringer for a parent. As good as you may try to do. And I commend you for it. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I have never seen in my life where a parent, grandparent, could ever undo what a parent was doing wrong. Without dealing with it biblically. I told you yesterday when we came through these two, I I know of a a friend of mine who was probably one of the greatest, best preachers that you would ever hear. And I and I and I and I I I I, I, I watched his life and it, it was a good life. And I don't question, I don't have any answers, I, I don't I, I don't make any judgments on it, I don't. But I watched his kids. And his kids were good kids. But those kids, after a period of time, 
One of them got messed up in a heresy. The other one quit going to church altogether. They had children. Their children may be saved. I wouldn't want to bet my children on their salvation. They may have gotten saved. I don't know. You couldn't tell it by the way they live their lives. And now we've entered into the third generation that some of them have married. And they married girls or guys who were completely out of the world. No question about them not being saved. And now they're going to produce a third generation of children. And by that third generation, one of the best, most powerful Bible teachers, Bible preachers, and families will cease to exist. Gone. Gone. Completely evaporated by the third generation. There's something about that third generation in the Bible. Now the third parenting pattern will be the ones who have a depth to them. This is what they, they try to do. Or I try to do for you. This is what our church is really all about. I understand this concept. I never look at you as a single and don't see you productive down the line in this concept. I don't look at you young couples who, who get, want to get married or do get married without trying to give you everything I can to help you understand what you need to do. You need to realize what the family is to God. And will, you need to do whatever you got to do, whatever you need to do to keep it on track. When you have children, you need to hold them to an accountability line, a value system, and you got to keep it biblical. You have to find out those five stages of, of dealing with a child and training them up. Because I'm telling you, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. They won't land where your neighbors shoot them. They won't land where their friends shoot them. They won't land where the people at school shoot them. They will land, listen to me, they will land, listen to me, they will land where mom and dad shoot them. It's just that simple. I've spent my whole life discipling young people, kids. Many of you or other people in this church have discipled you. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but your own parents couldn't disciple you. And yet they claim to be Christian. They couldn't disciple, wouldn't disciple you. I, 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 I don't know how they, I, honestly, I don't know how they look their kids in the face. I, I really don't. I mean, I'm just speaking from my own personal. Day. I would never be able to look my kids in the face. If I hadn't been able to sit down with them and teach them the Bible. And my kid didn't always like what I did with them and how I handled them. But you know what? I understood the long-term process. I don't understand everything about the third generation. I really don't. I wish I understood it better. I don't need to understand it really. I just see the concept. There's something special about that third generation in a family. And I'm told, I'm told by the wisest men that ever lived to get an inheritance to my children's children. say, well, I don't like this, but that's been your problem all along. Do you know that? You can't take rebuke. You can't see when you're wrong. It's always somebody else. You live in a world of denial. 
We'll see more about this third parent here in a little bit as we move on through here. Now, let me put it into perspective for you, for all of us. Many of you young men and ladies, can you come from non-biblical homes. No real Bible instruction. I get that. But I want to tell you something. God saw something in you. That he brought you to this church. He brought you to people who love you, understand you, and have a little bit of knowledge of the Bible. And I'll tell you why he did that if you haven't figured it out yesterday. I told the people yesterday. I'm telling to you now. You came from a family that had no Bible, maybe no salvation. And if it wouldn't be for what God did in your life, your whole heritage of your family would be in a lake of fire. But you know what, God? God saw something in you. And he took the time to bring you and get you where you needed to be so you here could get what I'm saying today and get whatever I'm laying out down the line that you will be the one who breaks that cycle in your family and from your life to your wife to your kid to your grandkids, when you bear the last name, you will put that thing back on track and get it where it needs to be. Oh, you got to see it. You'll break the generation cycle. You'll get your family, your future family, your grandkids, background. It'll all start with you. You, your children, and your grandchildren to the third generations. You will learn and grow and get a depth to you and see your marriage, your life, your family as God sees it. And will work to ensure that the inheritance gets passed on to the third generation. But that's what you got. And brother, it's one powerful concept. And I want to tell you something, all you future fathers, or you're already a young father, it's on you. It starts with you. Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is long-suffering and great mercy, forgiving equity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. It starts with the fathers. If you don't see it and you don't understand it and you don't take the lead in your family and you don't do what needs to be done no matter how hard it is, no matter who you make mad, no matter who you got to get out of your world, it'll break down. Now look at the last part of verse 22. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Now that's a great verse in principle. The worldly Christian who doesn't follow God's plan, who thinks he gets it all down here, and he does nothing with his family and gives them no inheritance. When the Lord comes back at the judgment seat of Christ, you know what God does? He takes what that guy would have gotten if he did what was right, and he gives it to those who do what's right. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Luke chapter 19, verse 12, verse 26. Story of the pounds. You got ten servants. He tells them in verse 13, I'm going back to the far country, heaven. I'm going to give each one of you a pound. Now, what you do with that pound is you occupy till I come back. In other words, you do something with what I gave you. And when he comes back, you got people in various stages of making an investment with what God gave them. God gave you a pound. He gave you something to invest some of you will invest it, some of you will not, some of you will sometimes do it, some of you will wind up with nothing in your hand. You'll give back God exactly what he gave to you like this guy did, and you say, well, Lord, I just didn't want to make a mistake, so I didn't do anything. 
One guy had one pound, he brought back ten. One guy had, he brought back five. But all there'll be God's people with what God gave you. You'll make no investment in your family, no investment in your life. And he says in verse 24, And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. You know what he does? He takes what this guy would have gotten and gives it to one who did what was right. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. God has something for all of us, and he's got a plan that he wants us to fulfill. But when we don't do it and we wind up standing there at the judgment seat doing nothing for him, he takes what he would have given you and he gives it to somebody else. I'm not a mercenary about it, but this is why I don't mind people shafting me when you try to help them in the ministry. Somebody says, boy, they really world hose you over. Yeah, they did, but probably the judgment street, I'll get what God had for him just because I did what I was supposed to do. Gives a whole new meaning to it. Not that you care about that. Look at verse 23. Much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is that that is destroyed for want of judgment. Translation. It's not about how much Bible you know. It's about what you do with what you do know. You can learn all of the Bible and do all kinds of things, but if you yourself don't apply the principles and learn how to make judgment calls in your life, you'll be destroyed for the lack of judgment. You'll have everything that God gives you, but you'll make bad judgment calls because of lack of judgment, and you'll wind up losing. In context, it's a mom and dad can do the right thing with their kids, maybe even get them saved. But because of bad judgment and dealing with their kids, but a third generation winds up being all destroyed. The attack on the marriage and the family. Wait till we get to the last pillar, the enemy of your marriage. There are several. And I see it all the time, you know, husbands who know the Bible but lose their marriages. You know, they have no idea how to minister, how to nurture, what it means to wash or to cherish or to sanctify. Those five things in Ephesians 5. No concept. The marriage of two destroyed people is destroyed because of the Bible-believing deep uh, sea-studying uh, husband uh, has a lack of judgment when it comes to her and with his family. He has much food, but gets destroyed because of his lack of judgment. How to use the Bible with his own family. I don't know how many times I've had somebody I've tried to help and show this, and they say, well, I'm just really hard-headed. I always say, let me translate that for you. You're really prideful. It's all hard-headedness is. It's your pride. We like to call it hard-headedness because it's cute. It's a punchline. Oh, he's so hard-headed. No, he's prideful. You can't teach him anything. Told a guy one time he was the most hard-headed guy I've ever in my life, and I, I finally got through to him. I say, you know what? In my other office, I have what I call my divorce clock. And everybody I work with, while I'm talking with them, the Holy Spirit of God I, comes down and moves the hands. And the divorce is going to happen at 12 midnight. 
And everybody I sit down with, while I'm in here in this office, the Holy Spirit of God is moving it. And when I'm, when I'm done, I'm going to go peek in there and I'm going to see how much time you got left on the divorce clock. They actually believe me. Like some of you just did. <laughs> and I said, I just looked. And you know what, pal? With your hard-headedness, you can't teach you anything, and you think you're always the one that's right. I just looked at the divorce clock. If divorce happens in your life at 12 midnight, you are at 1155. Families. Verse 24, 25. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him before times. Well, that's a rough verse, man. You don't whip your kid, you hate him. You know, most parents don't whip them because they say they love them. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Boy, how biblical you are. <laughs> you know why God whips you and whips me? Do you know why he does? And now, if you hadn't had a good whipping from God, you're probably either lying or you just need one. And if you say I had never had one, you're probably going to get one when you get in the car and go on the way home today just to God keep you honest. But you know why he chastises us? He does it because he loves you. He has something that he wants you to do, and we are so bullheaded on it that the only thing he can do is come down and drop the hammer. He doesn't do it because he hates you. He does it because he cares and he wants to mold your future. But he knows you got to break that stubborn will. Well, if you then being good, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father to give good things unto the ask him? He chastises you because he loves you. And I know the Bible says, you know, that the chastening of the present doesn't seem to be joyous, but grievous. I get it. It hurts. But afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruit unto God. There's the reason. You want peaceable fruit with God, do you? I'm asking a question. It is a question. Do you want peaceable fruit with God, do you? Bend over. (laughs) Because the path is chastisement. There's five stages of training up your child that leads to the failure of the family. Now, when you lose a child, there's five steps to take to restore that child. He says, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him before times. It's an old English phrase and it simply means before it's too late. Getting an inheritance to the third generation of your family is the number one most important thing we need to see and understand today. And a simple lack of judgment in a parent's world. It's the second law of thermodynamics. The law of entropy. Things left to a random state go down. Listen. Listen. Whatever your problems are as a parent, 
They'll be three times as bad in your children if you don't do right. And by the time your children pick up your bad habits and have their own bad habits, by the time they have grandchildren, it'll be six times worse. And it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Verse 26 says, The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. Now that's a simple verse. It starts out by simply saying the righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul. You can have as much of that Bible as you want, folks. You can eat it to the satisfying of your soul. There's no limits on it. You choose to be a surface type of guy, then that's your choice. You choose to go down deep and get the deep things and the fullness of God, that's your choice. God doesn't look at every man and say, you can only go so far, you can really go down, you're going to stay on the surface, you're going to do this. God opens up the Bible, you determine how deep you go. And what should drive you is the forethought of looking ahead to know I don't care if you are single right now. You're all beautiful, ladies, and all you guys are good looking. You're going to hook up sometime. You're going to get married sooner or later. Some fool's going to come along with one bad eye and marry you. You got to think long term. It's about now, this, that. It's about the inheritance that you pass on to the third generation that completes your family for the mission to reach this world. Lord, help us. But the belly of the wicked shall want. You bet they do. Across this city and across this country, there's moms and dads sitting in churches with their hearts broken. They want their kids to be in church. They want their kids to be in ministry. And they're not. They don't want to be. I get it. I understand it. But unfortunately, in most cases, the cycle is set. Not because there is not something you can do, but because you won't do what you need to do. Somebody says, do you feel sorry for him? I feel sorry for everybody. That's my makeup. I guy can be the dumbest, be the dumbest, stupidest mistake you ever made in his life. I look past the mistake, see the good in him, and feel bad for him. I, I may think he got what he deserved, but I feel sorry for him because I see he could have been better than that. I feel bad for a lot of some of you. Not a lot of you, but some of you. Because you know what? You could be better than you are. And you're going to lose out at the judgment seat of Christ. And I feel sorry about that. But how many times have I told you, contrary to some belief, you can't want someone to do right more than they do. I mean, I keep it in perspective. I feel sorry for you. But I really feel sorry for the Lord. He's the one that loses in this. It's his heritage you're denying him. It's his reward you're taking from him. 
Oh, you may lose your crowns and you may lose your family and you may, you may, you may lose the inheritance for them. But God loses too. I wonder how many people, just kibitzing now, I wonder how many people may die and go to hell because a Christian family wasn't completed to the third generation to reach the world by God's plan. Wouldn't that be a sobering thought at the judgment seat of great white throne judgment? That two or three thousand people point their finger at you and simply say, we're lost today because you knew that families was the key. You knew that preacher told you it was the third generation and you did nothing with it. God did everything to ensure your family would fulfill that third generation concept. He gave you salvation, gave you the Holy Spirit of God, gave you the Bible, gave you this church, this church, gave you a pastor who understands and will kick your rear end, but he'll love you through it all. But because you refuse to go deep, you just got to live in the practical. He's done everything that God could do for you. But that Bible says that bad judgment will lead to want. Now, what do you do? Some of you got plugged in later in life and your kids were already gone. I understand. Some of you just really made a mess of it. I get it. I have made, thankfully not with my family, but I have made some really messes in my life. So I can't, I'm not, I'm preaching. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me and mostly to these young couples here. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. You know why? There's no reason to feel bad. You know why? Because there's always something you can do. Don't you sit back there and say, well, I just don't like that message. I don't like it either. Well, I just don't think he has a right to say that. Well, I probably don't. But you know what? I will tell you something. You don't have to feel that way because there is a way out if you want to take it. And if you don't want to take it, enjoy it. Enjoy it. I mean, you're like some of your wives. You say, honey, what's wrong? I have a terrible headache. Did you take anything for it? No. Enjoy it. Because you want to put all the aspirin people out of business doesn't mean that that's the thing that you do. Now, here's what you do. You keep living the example you're now living before those kids. You show them that there's a difference in your life and you show them not halfway, not three quarters of the way. You show them that the ministry and church and the things of the Word of God are most important things in your life. Quit substituting church things for this when they need to see that, you know what, we better not to schedule something on a church day because they're going to be there. That's what they need to see. Amen. Then you begin the five steps to regain your kids. And now the third thing, probably the most important. You learned a lesson. You can't necessarily fix it today or tomorrow in your own world. Okay, I get that. Quit crying in your beer. Quit slopping and moping around about it. You know what you do now? If you got it together and you understand, and maybe you can't at this point go back and fix your own family, 
then just do this. Be smarter than the problem. Look around you in this church of some young man and some young guy who is coming along and wanting to learn and then do with him what you should have done with them. It just may be the thing that God uses to turn the whole corner for you. But no, 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 no. We'll sit back there. We'll complain. We'll mumble. We'll groan. We'll murmur. We won't do what we need to do. And you look around you and there's scores of people who need an example in their life of somebody bringing them along and helping them, and you could help these young guys and gals ensure they break that cycle that they're coming out of. There's always something you can do. There's a man in this church, and I will not tell you his name. I will not even look in any direction. He's a hero to me. He never was a bad guy. He was a guy who just got caught up in a lot of things in other churches. Never really did everything with his family he should have. The wonderful man. I love him like he's my own flesh and blood. Love his family. And when he got into this church... And God started to reveal to him all the things that he was missing in his life. He moved toward it. And I'll never forget the first time he came into my office and he sat down and he told me how that he hadn't done what was right with his family. And it was bothering him terribly that him and his wife were now plugged in and all of his kids were not coming to church. And he took responsibility for that, and he knew. There was no blaming anybody. It wasn't like, well, so-and-so made my boy drink beer, or so-and-so did this, or, you know, it was none of that. He took complete responsibility for what he did, for, for, for that. And I'll tell you something. We sat down, and we talked, and we prayed about it, and I laid out a plan out of the five steps. And you know what that man did? He called his family together. And he confessed to them that he was not what he needed to be in their younger years. And he asked them to forgive him. And then he told them from this point on, it was going to be different. And he wanted them to be everything that God wanted them to be. The family responded overwhelmingly. They wept. They hugged each other. It probably was the greatest single moment in that family's life, other than when everybody probably got saved in their time period of gotten saved. And I want to tell you something. Been in this business over 40 years. I have never seen anything like that in my life. I've seen dads do what was right, try to do what's right, seen a lot of them not do what was right. Most of them just blame everybody else for it. But there was no guile in this. He took full responsibility. And he sat down with his family and he confessed to them and asked them to forgive him. And he began to put in his life and today his family is on target. To me, he is my hero. I wish as a father I could be as good as he is. He is a model to me. I never told him this. He's a model to me. I always loved him. 
always thought he was special, but I've never loved him like I've loved him after that moment. Because there is what the Bible calls a father who is going to make sure that his family gets the inheritance to the third generation. Every head bowed and every eye closed. See, it's always up to us. Start with the dad. That third generation is absolutely vital in the Bible. It changes everything. And yet we get married, we have relationships, and we never see it. This tape to today, when we put the book together on our marriage, seven, ten, seven Pillars of Marriage, this is going to be the last part. It's going to be a little section in the back that explains it, and there's going to be a CD that goes along with it because it puts the finishing touches on it. Listen, kids, you're going to be married someday. You're going to have a family. You need to understand that the reaching of the world isn't just about you. It's about who you marry, the family you raise, and getting that family to the third generation. There's something about that third generation in God's mind that settles the thing. And I don't fully understand it. But it's all through the Bible. You have to begin to realize that you need to leave your children the inheritance that God has given you and the vision that you have for the world. It just won't happen because you go to church and have the right King James Bible. It happens because in every aspect of the husband and wife relationship, you train up a child in the way he should go. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. You will launch them in life, and they will hit the target where you launch them. 